has every business book. And all of human history says persistence is the key to success. So I thought, I'm just going to keep pounding. After eight months of being rejected, it feels like you're coughing up blood. Yeah. And I actually ended up getting an interview with Bill Gates separately. And Bill Gates loved the interview so much that his office said, how can we help? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm having some trouble with Warren Buffett. And they're yeah. like, oh, Warren and Bill are best friends. That's a no-brainer. I got an email from Bill Gates' chief of staff saying, please, no more messages to Warren's office. Thanks. <laughs> Alex Benayan and I share a passion. It's figuring out how top achievers in the world perform on a daily basis. It's essentially why I started this podcast. But while Alex was a freshman at USC, he was originally scheduled to pursue a medical degree, but decided that wasn't for him. He felt compelled to succeed as a business person. And wanting to reach such high levels, he wanted to study and learn about Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Maya Angelou, and how they reached those levels. He thought surely there was a book about their origin stories and how they got to those levels of success, but there wasn't. So he began to embark on his next journey, which was to author a book detailing the lives of those successful people and how they started their careers. And then he dropped out of school to do so and begin that quest. And on the podcast, him and I relive the lessons he learned on the journey from anchoring those interviews, the more inspiring moments from those interviews, and his early success, even as a 19-year-old venture capitalist, which also came from some of those interviews. Oh, and Alex is also the youngest author to ever land a deal with Penguin Random House, and it's for this book that he wrote on those people called The Third Door. But I'll leave you with one more exciting thing that happened. He funded his travels and the creation of the book by hacking the winning model of a famous game show, The Price is Right. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. Welcome to the stage, a wonderful author, creative thinker, innovator, researcher, Alex Benayan. Well, Alex, thanks for joining me here in New York. You're an L.A. native. Yes, born and raised. Yes, and uh, a best-selling author. So I'm going to start this podcast a little bit in, in reverse order of what I typically do uh, because our authors that come on the show are often personal and audience favorites, uh, not only because of the, the application, the utilities that we are able to hopefully extract from the work product that you have here in front of us, which is the third door, um, but I also want to hear some of your inspirational authors or aspirational or favorite mm -hmm. books. And so you've interviewed Tim Ferriss, and this is mm -hmm. a, a common asked question of yeah. him. So uh, of, of all the books you read or, or which books have you gifted most frequently or, or which would you like to recommend? And we'll start there. Ooh, it depends what stage in my life. So you don't even get to warm up on this podcast. Okay, you I have like to this, give a man. recommendation to, to the audience. This right is away. the heart of the matter. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the past two years, the number one most gifted book by a mile is a book called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. And I got the book by a, a friend gave it to me when my dad first got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I remember being very hesitant to start reading it. And only in hindsight can I realize that I didn't want to open it because opening it admitted that things were falling apart in my life. But I think it took 
two months. It just sat, you know, sometimes a book just sits on your desk. Yep. And I just stared at it for two months until one day I was just a complete wreck. I had taken my dad to the chemo center and I'm like, I'm taking the afternoon off. I can't go to work. So I took the book and I opened it and literally just from the first page, I could feel my body relaxing. It spoke to me that deeply. And it's the one book I can confidently say that's changed the entire way I view life and treat myself. And that's the biggest gift anyone can give you. It sounds very therapeutical. Oh, my. If anyone is going through a hard time in life, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Would you also say that when things are going well, perhaps give it a read too? Yeah, if you care about preventive medicine, yeah. <laughs> which should be everyone. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, the reason I say that is I read a book recently uh, called The Upward Spiral by Alex mm. Korb. And, uh, and the scope of the work is for people who battle with depression and around kind of reverse engineering uh, spiked feelings that uh, you know, happen on, on occasion, often unpredictably. Uh, but he, he says in his preface that this is uh, not just a book for people who have biological depression. It's for anyone that can, you know, cares to work on reengineering perhaps the way that their brain is functioning or signaling, uh, their, their mental and, and physical state of being. So, um, I would recommend that I've, I've spent a lot of time personally and, and it took me your, 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 your anecdote there took me to your interview with Jessica Alba, hmm. where it happened at the same time yeah. of that diagnosis of your father. And you said that uh, while you were trying to get her on track around her success as an actress in business, she kept coming back to yeah. the uh, empathic uh, state of being that she lives in, which is probably really beneficial in her management skill set and yeah. her, her personal and professional evolution. With her, that interview specifically, you know, like you mentioned, the interview took place right when my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I went in trying to treat the Jessica Alba interview the way I treated all my other interviews, which is I have my notepad, yeah. I have my questions, I've done my research, this is game day, you know? I've spent two months preparing for this. I got one hour, you know, the clock is ticking. And there's something about facing mortality that can overpower. I'm the kind of person who wants to be super focused and super dialed in, and I just couldn't push through. Yep. And it was almost as if Jessica Alva knew that, and she wanted to show me the power of just being myself. Yep. And it was only when, you know, halfway through the interview, I just broke down and I blurted out, you know, my dad just got diagnosed with cancer, that the real interview began. Yep. Wow. So your, your real life or your, this, this quest that you're on in life, I suppose, began uh, when you were in college. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've, you know, you sort of had a path your whole life. I don't know if you've been through the what do I want to do with my life crisis. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I think like that's, that's, that's what I've talked about often is, or it's, it's more or less like, is this a viable life, what I'm doing right, right now? Yeah. So for me, I'm going through this crisis freshman year of college. And to understand why, you have to understand that I'm the son of Jewish immigrants which pretty much means I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. <laughs> and you know, you think it's funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween and thought I was cool. Yeah. Now, that was my childhood growing up. And in high school, I checked all the boxes. You know, I 
studied for the SATs, took all the biology classes. I even went to pre-med summer camp. So by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. And very quickly, I found myself on that dorm room bed looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they're sucking the life out of me. And at first, I assumed, you know, I was just being lazy, but very quickly, I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on, and I'm just rolling down. And that's where that word you used to overcome started kicking in, where once I started having those questions, it started becoming this snowball where I was like, okay, not only do I not know what I want to do, how did all these people who I looked up to, how did they do it? You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? Or how did, you know, Lady Gaga get her first record deal without a single hit under her belt? This is not what they teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be an answer out there. Right. So, man, I'm just going to the library and ripping through business books and biographies and self-help books, assuming, you know, there has to be a book out there. With the answers, but very quickly, I found myself empty-handed. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? Yeah. And I thought it'd be super simple. I thought I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else. Yeah. I thought it'd be done in a couple months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund the journey because I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of our midst for cash. So there had to be another way. It's a it's a topic that's often discussed, uh, whether it's whatever medium you're on, if mm -hmm. if it's audio or if, if you're reading self help books or uh, prof professional growth books, is how do you identify your passion? It's something that is tiptoed around in school. Mm -hmm. No one seems to have the answer. Uh, some business leaders say at all costs follow your passion. Others say uh, allow your skill sets to uh, develop, and they will that that subject matter will turn into your passion. Yeah. Um, and so your framework is, is, is I'm going to study what got successful people there. And often passion comes back with a few other character uh, skills and uh, both hard and soft. Would you consider yourself a, a researcher and author, mm. an author exclusively? Is this your passion or is this your foray into finding your passion? Well, first of all, the word passion is the most confusing fucking word on yeah. earth. You know? <laughs> it's literally like this cloud in front of you and people are like, follow your passion. Right. I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck passion yeah. means. Yeah. People are like, you know, follow your gut. And I'm like, my gut says I'm hungry. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what my gut says. And when I started this book, it wasn't about, you know, finding my passion. It was, I was just trying to dig myself out of this hole that I felt I was in where I didn't even know what I wanted to do. And I knew that even if I didn't know, I didn't know how to get started. So what I was obsessed with was not just studying a certain age in someone's life, but really a certain stage when no one's taking your calls, no one's taking your meetings. How do you find a way to break through? And it doesn't matter if you're coming out of college or you're 60 years old and starting a new chapter in your life. This is really about that stage. Yeah. So talk about the third door in, in its in its entirety. What where is the third door? The the uh, the metaphor. So the journey ended up taking seven years. So my two month idea wasn't exactly yeah. right. It took seven years, and about halfway through, I had this realization that every single person who I was researching, every person who I interviewed, was treating life and business and success the exact same way. And I don't know if you're a music fan, but to me, it was like a common melody in every single conversation. Hmm. You know, the lyrics are different, but the melody is the same. And the analogy that came to me is that, you know, I was 21 at the time, 
I was like, it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. Yep. You know, there's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, that's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. Yep. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I learned, and I'm sure what you know very well, is there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. Yep. And and what I like about this book is, is you by by nature of of its title and have found the third door into interviewing a lot of your guests. Uh, and then you figured out what their third door was as well. Yeah. So when I was thinking through how to structure this conversation, I uh, I wanted to spend some time first on uh, getting in touch with these people. And uh, a lot of it has been through email and, and like hacking your way, figuring out what their email is. And so l- let's let's discuss that and step by step because there is a ton of value mm. Uh, sans this book and just meeting people and the people that you want to, whether you're an aspirational author or if you want to get into a prospective line of work, you have to you know, connect with the right people. Right. And I think we all know that, but m- most people don't know how to navigate that process. So when you were going in saying, hey, I want to get in front of Bill Gates, uh, Lady Gaga, <laughs> Jessica Alba, let's talk about the tactics. So you know, you brought up email, which is definitely the most useful one in 2018. Because you don't, you know, when I was starting out, I didn't know anyone. I'm the son of immigrants. So, yeah. you know, my dad knew the Persian carpet dealer down the street and that was about it, you know? So that was my network growing up. Yep. The rabbi and the carpet dealer. Yeah. So, <laughs> so email, if you're lucky enough, and you know, not everyone on earth has access to it, but if you're lucky enough to have access to the internet in a computer, the world is yours and cold emailing is that key. Yep. And... One of the early interviews I did, which you mentioned, was with Tim Ferriss, the author of The 4-Hour Workweek. And when I interviewed Tim Ferriss, first of all, people have to understand, I didn't just like casually interview him. I had to crouch in a bathroom for 30 minutes at a conference with my ear pressed against the wall, waiting to hear Tim Ferriss walking by so I could jump out and talk to him. So that's how that interview came to be. But when I finally got the interview, I knew that Tim Ferriss got his first job out of college by cold emailing the CEO of a startup he wanted to work for 32 times. And then when he wanted to be an author, he cold emailed different best-selling authors to get advice. So I realized, you know, cold emailing was sort of his early trick. Mm -hmm. So I asked him when I was interviewing him, I just kept pressing him and pressing him on tactics and he finally revealed his cold email template. And I cannot stress how effective this is. I I actually didn't think it would work, so I tried it as an experiment to like prove it was only worked for Tim. Yeah. And it's never not worked for yeah. me. Okay. And my favorite thing is that now that the book's out going on the Amazon reviews, you see people go in all caps, the email template works. It works. All right. So this is how it goes. Ready? You know, dear so and so. Your opening line is I know you're incredibly busy and you get a lot of emails. So this will only take 60 seconds to read. Boom. Yep. Next paragraph. Yep. Super specific on timing. Only takes 60 seconds to read. Yep. And I think that that second part of that sentence is really important to think about because I see a lot of emails and I've done a lot where I say, I know you're incredibly busy. And uh, and that can be misconstrued or interpreted in a number of different ways. So then the the, the directive after, I think, has to be included. 
it shows you're thoughtful yeah. about their time. Yep. And you're not asking for too much. All right, next paragraph, really simple, one to two sentences max of who you are and what context is relevant to that person. So this isn't your life story. It's one to two sentences of who you are and why that's relevant. Boom, next paragraph. That requires research on that person, which oh, goes yeah. a long way for someone like Tim, or goes a long way for someone who was a recent guest of Seth Godin, or someone who's been on the podcast here, Ryan Holiday, because it shows that you're putting effort and you're just not trying to grab their attention. Here's who I am, look at me. It's, you know, Tim's never played lacrosse, but Tim, I'm a professional lacrosse player. I play for Team USA, and I know you grew up playing. Right. And I know you use lacrosse balls to massage your calves. There you go. Like something, you know, it might even be something like there you that. Go. That actually shows. And that's true. Right. It is true. Yeah. And it shows. <laughs> it's my awkward Tim Ferriss uh, trivia. It shows that you have put in some time. Right. This holiday season, Away has the perfect gift for everyone on your list and for every destination on theirs. Away makes suitcases for the way we actually travel with features like an ejectable TSA approved battery or a built-in front pocket, and they come in a range of colors and materials that suit their travel style. Every suitcase comes also with a 100-day trial that gives any traveler getting away plenty of time to decide on the perfect size and color, which means you can gift with confidence during this holiday season because everyone wants to get away. I go everywhere with my Away. I can charge my cell phone directly from its portable access point. And the functionality of the suitcase is actually perfect for a guy like me. It's ultra durable. It's compartmentalized for my clothes, medicine kit, even PT tools. And the wheels alleviate lugging bags over my shoulder and moving slowly. I need to be fast. And this holiday season, we're offering $20 off a suitcase only if you visit awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel right now and use promo code Rabel during checkout. So that's awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and use promo code Rabel during checkout because this season, everyone wants to get away. Today's episode is brought to you by Glip. It's a software app that gives companies unlimited access to file sharing and task management for free. Glip can benefit your org through the means of the following, collaboration on files, creating and managing tasks to deliver projects faster, screen sharing to collaborate instantly with your teams and clients, and unlimited access to messaging, number of users, storage, and more. Now here's some additional fodder for you and your team to think through before you try the service. Number one, 64% of Glip users deliver projects faster than before. And number two, 88% of Glip users are more informed about their organization's projects. Now, on a broader marketplace standpoint, 63% of employees say that collaboration and communication are the most important factors contributing to a company's success. So listen, as a business and team leader, I have to take into account data. And in this case, all point towards culture, communication, and workplace efficiencies. And we found that Glip helps get you there. So try it for yourself by accessing Glip on the go, by downloading the iOS and Android apps, or by using their web-based app. And right now, because you're a Student Up Podcast listener, you can sign up for a free Glip account and get unlimited access to team messaging, task management, file sharing, and more. Go to glip.com forward slash Rabel. That's G-L-I-P dot com forward slash Rabel. So boom, the next paragraph, again, one to two sentences max of your hyper-specific question for the person. You know, it's not like, what should I do with my life? It's, you know, Paul, what's one question, what's one book that you recommend for an aspiring podcaster? Yep. 
And then your closing paragraph is the most important. You say, I totally understand if you're too busy to respond. Even a one or two line reply will completely make my day. All the best, Tim. Hmm. And it's the closing that actually lets them off the hook, which makes them like you, which makes them want to reply. Right. What do you think about uh, the, the line of question? Uh, this is something that stuck with me. And, and one of the benefits and reasons why I do this podcast, I get to learn so much uh, from my guests. But Ryan Holiday had, had told me that you know, when you ask a question from someone that you're hoping to anchor in as a mentor or someone you'd like to build a relationship with, make sure it's a question that you otherwise couldn't get the answer to on your own. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, if so, you can find the answer on Google, that's a waste of their time. Right. So there's there's uh, there's recapping. There's two areas that show that that deep level of thought and ingenuity, and you got to make sure you have all of them. Now, what about endurance and expectation thereafter? Follow ups. If there if there's not a response, do you banana tag them to see if it was open, <laughs> so you're not feeling insecure about whether or not they read it, and if you should follow up. I, I've learned this the hard way. Yeah, because you've been persistent as hell with a lot of your guests, <laughs> and it backfired with. You know, Warren Buffett. Right. I ended up spending eight months writing handwritten letters to Warren Buffett, calling his office week after week after week. And Warren Buffett actually hand wrote responses back. But the answer was always, you know, dear Alex, thank you, but no thank you. But I thought, you know, if he's handwriting a response, I'm, you know, I'm at the 95 yard line. I'm right there. Right. So to me, I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to keep pushing because every business book and all of, Human history says persistence is the key to success. So I thought, I'm just going to keep pounding. After eight months of being rejected, it feels like you're coughing up blood. Yeah. And I actually ended up getting an interview with Bill Gates separately. And Bill Gates loved the interview so much that his office said, how can we help? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm having some trouble with Warren Buffett. And they're yeah. like, oh, Warren and Bill are best friends. That's a no-brainer. I got an email from Bill Gates' chief of staff saying, please, no more messages to Warren's office. Thanks. <laughs> and that felt like I got punched in the gut because I realized not only was the answer no, but I had gotten myself blacklisted. And no one talks about the dangers of over-persistence. Hmm. Every business book likes to put persistence on a pedestal, but none talk about the dangers of over-persistence where you can – Dig yourself into such a deep hole that even Bill Gates can't pull you out. So how do you solve for that? Is it having a level of self-awareness or is it being more communicative? Meaning in uh, retrospect, would you have on the second or third written letter to Warren Buffett said, hey, Warren, I appreciate your written responses. If I'm going too far with my requests, kindly let me know and I'll stop. You know... Self-awareness and intuition are super important, but the problem for me was that my desperation clogged my intuition. Mm, emotion override. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's, you know, I talked about the third door analogy. There's a difference, and I learned the hard way, between pounding on a door, you know, three or four times and then saying, okay, that one's locked. Let me try the other one versus pounding on one door a hundred times. They're just going to fucking call the police on you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... It's not like, oh, I'm going to knock this down by right. knocking a hundred times. It doesn't actually work that way. Yep. 
And, and if he were to have taken a meeting with you, it would probably have been full of animosity and frustration, <laughs> which wouldn't have accomplished anything. Right. And persistent, you know, in the book, Dean Kamen, one of the most accomplished inventors alive, talks about persistence isn't about kissing a hundred frogs and seeing which one turns into a, pris, a prince. Persistence is kissing, you know, two of this type, three of this type, five of this type. You know, Bruce, he said a great line. He said, and actually the line didn't make it into the book because we have to trim down that chapter. But he said a great line. He said, you know, brute force is called brute force for a reason. It's for brutes. Like yeah. <laughs> that's not <laughs> how you succeed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's actually, uh, it, it reminds me a lot of the athlete culture by brute force or being the hardest worker in the room, knowing that there's always someone at your heels and that that culture that I think works on the athletic field right. for a while, but can sometimes take its way into personal life or work life. And it's something in particular that uh, has to be talked about. And I think uh, that that's a really great uh, point that you bring up is at, at what point is persistency too much? Uh, not necessarily cutting your losses, but I think just being aware uh, of of what's happening and, and being able to step out of the uh, the current of emotion, right. and and think more rationally and and objectively, and and that's what I've learned more in business than I have in sports is mm-hmm. trying to be objective requires uh, in a way your ability to step outside of yourself and right. take a which look is back. hard when you feel your back is up against the wall. Yeah. Do you have any like personal practices, meditation, mindfulness, okay. and stuff where where you work on uh, your ability to be objective with yourself? Oh yeah. So. Undeniably, you know, there's a few things that have changed my life radically, which seems so simple that I actually ignored them for so much of my journey because I thought, you know, how how good could it be? Right. You know, the first one was therapy. You know, I always thought growing up, first of all, I'm from, like I said, like Jewish immigrant family. So therapy and cocaine are pretty much in the same category of like things you do not touch. You know, <laughs> you do not touch it. And if you're going to therapy, it's because you're a psychopath. Right. And something's horribly wrong with you. Um, that's no. a stigma still attached to it today. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, no, you know, only after going to therapy and seeing how it changed my life. I'm like, uh, that's like saying going to a doctor is only good if your arm has been cut off. Right. Or if you're an athlete, you should figure out your workout on your own. Don't see a strength conditioning coach or a physical oh my therapist. God. My mom said the same thing when I started therapy. She's, she said, she used yeah. that analogy. She's like, if you're an athlete, that means you would have to rely on your coach to succeed. I'm like, uh, Every great athlete yeah. relies on a coach. Yeah, yeah. L- let me just not go to school and learn from a professor, and I'll figure this out on my own. <laughs> right. It's just, it's just shocking to me. So I've been going to therapy, you know, once a week for five years. Yep. I've been meditating, doing transcendental meditation, twice a day for five years. Wow. And I've been journaling pretty consistently for about eight years now. Are, are the, all of those stable stakes for your week and days, meaning let's just take New York. You're here for 48 hours. You right. go back to LA. You're going from you know media hits to meetings, other obligations. Uh, your calendar might have, a few other people might have access to it. Right. I, don't, I don't know. Like if it was mine, 20 people have access to it and sometimes it gets clogged up. So how, how are you, are you blocking it off or, or is this like, hey, I can't do this because I need time? Are you are you waking up earlier to take care of it? So like meditation for Clearly, example. this is a yeah. personal <laughs> inquiry. Well, this is the thing for meditation, right? And I think you and I are pretty similar in the sense of like, we are totally open to the, you know, Eastern medicine style things. 
if it helps us with our Western goals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not, you know, people might hate me for saying this. I'm not like meditation for meditation's sake. I'm meditation for like making my life fucking better sake. Yeah. Like I like the practical uses. Right. Not the hippie uses. You well, know? yeah. And it's backed by research and data that you're actually able to make more, uh, more thoughtful and concerted decisions and you're able to handle conflict better. 100%. Um, a meditation teacher said something to me once. He said, life is a result of the decisions you make. You know, your quality of life is a result of the decisions you make. Yep. Not necessarily what happens to you. Yep. And I completely agree. And meditation's sole purpose is to help you be in the present moment for you to make the best decisions in any given moment. Yep. So, you know, right now, like my trip to New York, it's obviously packed with different book tour events and interviews. I actually will do three meditations a day because hmm. to me, I want to make sure that I'm doing my absolute best. So if that means I'm not hanging out with a friend for an hour, like I'm cool with that. I can yep. FaceTime my friend next week. Yep. I want to make sure the next two days are the best two days and meditation helps that happen. Yeah. So you're prioritizing why you're here and you're you know, say, you know, suggesting that that meditation is going to help you perform at a higher rate. Uh, how do you think about your 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 kind of your social goals and and that that state of being? Because I I didn't want to like turn this into uh, a podcast on balance. I've had, especially for my audience that listens, uh, a number of conversations around my theory. I don't think it's a, a balance between. Uh, your professional goals and personal goals. I think balance is more about your alignment between what you're actually doing, so your actual self and your ideal self. And I and and where we hope to be is you know getting our actual self closer to our ideal self. But we get anxiety around that delta between the two. Uh, my actual self right now is in the trenches building a, an upstart professional sports league. Uh, so I have no social life, but I have balance because I know I have so no social life. I'm not trying to, right. uh, you know, go out and spend you know two to three nights in New York with friends because it's not realistic. If I had that, you know, implanted in my mind, then I would feel off balance because I wouldn't be able to achieve that. Right, and I agree with you 100. percent I'm in the same boat. Where, and I think Jeff Bezos says it best. Jeff Bezos says, "Stop caring about work-life balance." and start caring about work-life integration. And he's sort of describing the same thing you are, which is what you, he said, oh my God, I love how he said, it. he said, he just went on this rant. Yeah. He was like, first of all, work and life are not two separate and equal things. Work is part of life. Right. So he, he was pretty much like, shut the fuck up about yeah, work life yeah, balance. Yeah, yeah. Because work is within your life. Right. You know, it's not like you have a life and then you have work. No, you have life and work is one of the aspects of it. He said that's the first thing. The second thing is what you're doing with your work ideally should be benefiting your social life. And what you're doing in your social life should ideally be benefiting your work life. What you're doing with your family, the time you spend with your family should actually be fueling you so when you go back to work the next day, you're fired up and motivated and fulfilled and feeling loved. It all should be, you know, when you're going to the gym, it shouldn't be draining the time at work. You should actually be better at the office because of that hour or two you put in at the exactly. gym. Exactly. Yeah. And that's work-life integration. Yep. That's great. So 
Uh, let, let's we we got a little bit off, but let's go back to the book. <laughs> I like um, it. Man. Yeah. So the the the, the book and uh, and that was for for lack of a better segue. Uh, the the book was as you mentioned earlier trying to figure out how to fund it this seven year journey you've <laughs> right. gone on, and, and I have to make this call out and you have to tell us a story because there's there's critical thinking and integration into the way that you got you know the jump start of funding on this which was on the prices right. <laughs> right. So can can you help me understand like one the 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 impetus of hey I'm gonna get on this show was there was there a moment where this could help me fund my book or are you on the show and then you figured out, well, well, since I'm on the show, let me figure out uh, through research and analysis a way to get on there and best position myself to actually win. It was definitely, you know, I talked about the story in the beginning where once I had the idea of, you know, if no one's going to write this book, my, you know, if no one's going to write this book, why not do it myself? My first problem was obviously, how am I going to fund this? Yeah. Because I knew. And that's probably for all young entrepreneurs out there. Right. Whether it's a book or a business. Right. And even, you know, writing a book doesn't cost money to put pen to paper. But I knew, you know, flying to Seattle to interview Bill Gates is going to cost money to buy a plane ticket. And, you know, I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to do it. And what I realized, I would, you know, I spent some a while thinking about it. And Tony Robbins has this great quote that he says, you know, if I tell you to look around a room and search for everything blue. And then I asked you what red things you saw, you would see none of it. And really what his point is, is that you see what you're looking for. And I was just hungry and looking for some cash, mm. you know? Yep. And sure enough, I was in the library two nights before final exams, and I was on Facebook, and I saw someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And the first thing I thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book. Unbelievable. You know, not my brightest moment. That's that's actually very bright. <laughs> I've always looked at the price right. It's like, hey, I'll be and watch, you know, be at this at this venue. It's a f- entertaining spectacle and I'll have a good time. You know, by the way, I've actually never talked about this, but I actually think, you know, people talk about manifesting and all that stuff. Yeah. I think it's bogus, but I actually think there's a real psychological element to it, which was I was just walking around all day saying, how am I going to get money? How am I going to get money? How yeah. am I going to get money? So when I saw it, I was like, boom. That's my thing. Yeah. So you're saying you're, you're aligned more on 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 the Tony Robbins theory of if something's that is that meaningful, that important to you, you it's think about intention. it all the time. You'll you'll identify even the slimmest of opportunities or more abstract ones like you did versus the actual manifestation of cash onto your right. And it's just desire too. You know, if I said um, you know go find a green apple on the street of New York, it might take you a little while. But if I said find a green apple or else someone you love is going to pass away, you're going to find it. T- 30 seconds, you know? Yeah. And I just was really desperate to get this money. So I find this ticket to the price is right. And And then you deploy strategy, which most people wouldn't. Not, well, my first- What is that thing on this show? My first moment was I just, my first thought after I said, what if I go on the show was, that's an idiotic idea. Because I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. <laughs> I'd seen bits and pieces when I was, you know, anyone in America who's right. in fourth grade, homesick from school. The only thing you watch growing up is The Price is yeah. Right. 11 o'clock hour on the <laughs> East Coast. I got it. Right. Yeah. It's the only thing on TV. <laughs> so I've seen bits and pieces, but I'd never seen a full episode. So I told myself, you know, it's a dumb idea. Not think about it. But I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where an idea just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. And I needed to focus on my studies because I had finals in two days. So I actually remember opening my spiral notebook. I'm sitting in the corner of the library and I wrote, 
you know, best and worst case scenarios to prove to myself it's a dumb idea. And it was, you know, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid. Mom's, you know, mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20, <laughs> there's like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. So <laughs> just digging in a little bit on, on strategy because <laughs> it's an amazing story. And, uh, and so many entrepreneurs out there are now thinking about alternative ways of raising money. Right. No VCs, yeah. all game shows. Yeah, all game shows. You don't have to give up any equity. It, it reminds me, though, of, of something that we often tell the up-and-coming workforce that wants to get into entrepreneurship is that th there's no one who's going to give you the answers. And, and that... Mm. Is, is actually done more frequently in mature industries because you come in as an analyst, your path is to become an associate and then potentially a broker or partner and so on. But in that analyst role, you're being very task oriented. Uh, and then when you become associate, you delegate and so on. So it, there's always like, okay, I've completed my job for the day, now I'm going home. Right. In, in entrepreneurship, you may be at an entry level position tasked with a job, but the best, uh, young, uh, ambitious uh, workers will then say, okay, now that this is done, instead of going back to my uh, direct report and say, hey, you know, I've got this job, what else do you have for me? You say, what, what would she or he now ask me to do with right. this? And then so you go in and do that. So that critical thinking- It's being proactive and taking your life into your own hands. Exactly. So, so how did you specifically then go in and you hop onto Google and say, how do you win prices, right? <laughs> That's literally the first thing I did. My whole life has pretty much been me having a preposterous idea and then turning to Google for advice. Yeah. And, oh, you know, great. I think it's super underrated. And, yeah, I Googled, you know, how does the prices right work? And then I started reading stuff like that. And then I was like – and what happens is you Google something. Everyone stops reading after the first page. Dude, the gold is on the 23rd O of Google. Hmm. Like that's where the crazy shit is. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's where I learned that the price is right isn't what it seems. I read on a, you know, old like 1990s message board that it was in the comments section. And it said the price is right actually has a producer who interviews every single person in the audience. And on top of that, there's an undercover producer who's planted in the audience. So now I go back to Google and start searching price rate producer, price rate undercover producer. And that was my all-nighter, figuring out, okay, if I had to look at it statistically, there's 300 people in the audience, eight get called down as contestants. Out of the eight, one wins. So the odds are a lot easier if you're one of the eight that get called down. Sure. The hard part is being called down. Yep. So I pulled my, all, my whole all-nighter figuring out how that system worked. Amazing. Here's something for you. Hiring without a strategy is not smart. Not having informational and focus interviews, again, it's not smart. You know what else isn't smart? Making the lottery the centerpiece of your retirement plan. Or playing lacrosse without a helmet. Or not hydrating. Not smart. 
But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash cross to hire the right person for the job you're looking to fill right now. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you because it goes out and finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, their education and experience for the job at hand, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. And that's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from the hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, Student Up Podcast listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. It's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash cross. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash C-R-O-S-S-E. ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. Is is Google an, an alternate form of outreach to some of the talent that you brought onto the book, or mm-hmm. is the kind of the more modernistic way of reaching out now even DMs and social? It depends who you're talking to. Are you cold calling? <laughs> it all you know. It all depends. Ideally, the best in every scenario, no matter what, is seeing someone in person. Yeah, you know, looking them in the eye, them seeing that you're genuine and a real person. And that's where you get the emotional connection. Yep. If you're just starting out, that's pretty hard to do. So and it costly. All, and costly too. Um, not everyone has sailboat money to fly around yeah. <laughs> the country. <laughs> so, you know, Google to me is like the research department. And the cold email is like the Navy SEAL that goes in for the kill. And with, you know, some of the people who I interviewed for the book, I would spend months Googling them to make sure I know every single thing about them online. And only then when I start crafting my cold email. I think where a lot of people mess up is they write the cold email, send it, and then start researching the person. And they pretty much just blew their chances because they said things in the cold email that an hour on Google would have fixed. Yeah, you've got to be unique. And I like that 23rd page on the Google search, because if it's in the first page, it's likely had some level of virality, especially if you're searching how to win on prices, right? Right. Um, which and means then, everyone's read that. And, and, and which means then your odds have drastically gone down because that's now a level of average. Right. Uh, so, so to these guests, you've had Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Warren Buffett, you talk about at least Steven Spielberg, Jessica Alba, Pitbull, Larry King. Um, what are what are some of the common traits that you've seen mm. uh, that that you've been able to apply that you didn't already know? I think one of the most surprising traits that I didn't I didn't expect was that when I started this journey, I just assumed every single one of these people had to be fearless. You know, you look at Bill Gates or Elon Musk, and you just assume they had to be fearless to do what they did. And something you have to understand about me is I was like the most scared kid you would ever meet growing up. <laughs> you know, I had like a nightlight on until I was 12. Like I hated roller coasters. I still don't watch any scary movies. <laughs> so that was a natural question I had is like, how did they become so fearless? Are you born with it? Did they develop it like a muscle? Like how did they become fearless? I was shocked after spending seven years doing all these interviews that not only was every single person scared They were terrified the whole way through. Hmm. And that didn't make any sense to me. And what I realized is it wasn't fearlessness they achieved. It was courage. And while the words sound similar, the difference is critical. Fearlessness is jumping off of a cliff and not thinking about it. You know, that's idiotic. 
Courage, on the other hand, is acknowledging your fear, analyzing the consequences, and then deciding you care so much about it, you're still going to take one thoughtful step forward anyway. Where does confidence come in for a lot of these folks? Is it is it earned or is it manufactured uh, early on? And those, I, I'm hearing myself say, those aren't mutually no, no. exclusive, yeah. You know, there's, to me, a difference between confidence and self-confidence. Hmm. Confidence, to me, comes from um, a lot of external validation, which there's nothing good or bad about either, but I think it's important to know the difference. Self-confidence, though, comes from promises you've made with yourself that you've kept. Self-confidence comes from only things that you know about yourself, really difficult things. And, you know, we go back to courage. When you knew you were terrified and you still did it anyways, that's where self-confidence comes from. And when you're in the ring and you're getting punched in the face, your confidence is the first thing that falls off. And it's that self-confidence, that inner reservoir that helps you stay in the game. What about humility? Which I think gets juxtaposed often with these a lot of these bigger celebrities, musicians, actresses, and so on, is they have to uh, personify themselves in big red carpet events, right. um, and then there are certainly a lot of challenges that come with that level of uh, fame. <laughs> and and I've been surprised in sitting down with a lot of athletes and and entertainers, entrepreneurs on this podcast that the most successful share that level of humility. And they're just as inquisitive um, and very self-aware and, and willing to talk about their failures and lapses and that level of vulnerability. Yeah, 100%. And one of the people in the book that it's one of my favorite interviews is with Maya Angelou, the poet, mm -hmm. the late poet. And she explained the difference between humility and modesty, which I didn't understand. She said, modesty is this you know, facade of meekness. It's like, oh, little old me. No, 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 I'm not that special. That's modesty. That is a facade, a pretense that you're putting on to make other people like you. That's modesty. And Maya Angela has a great line. She says, when I meet a modest person, I run the other direction. Because <laughs> <laughs> the second life gets a little hard, that modesty is going to drop right away. Right. Humility, though, comes from within. It comes from knowing and acknowledging that everything you've done is thanks to the people that came before you and paid your way. Whether it's your grandparents or your ancestors. Um, for me, it was my grandparents who came to America, my mom who you know, works two jobs, took two mortgages on the house. Humility is knowing that everything you've done has only been possible because of people who have paid your way. So it's an internal sense of gratitude for those who came before you and a desire to pay it forward for the people who will come after you. And, and that has to be practiced yeah. to be achieved, especially when 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 needed, yeah. which is more often than not. Um, have you witnessed at all through through any of your your subjects or or others the this this notion of of uh, never enough? Mm. And, and we hear that in sports a lot. It's it's really dynamic. Is is that uh, that what's next mentality? Uh, that can be very eroding because of its uh, its ability to take you out of the present situation and always look to what's next and it's really distracting and, and can often um, 
you know, be be the gateway to depression or or 100%. failure. Yeah. You know, success is a crazy thing. And one of the things I like to think of them as like side effects. I went to go study success career wise, but if you're studying this for seven years, you naturally start learning about other things like what you just said. And something I learned is that success is a multiplier. If you are depressed before you achieve massive success, you're going to be super depressed hmm. after you achieve it. If you are happy and fulfilled before, you're going to be super happy and fulfilled. And I think people think that success is the water that fills the cup. But in reality, if your cup doesn't have a bottom, it doesn't matter how much water you pour in. And something that I learned is that there's – I. Have you read the book Sick in the Head by Judd Apatow? I haven't. Uh, I'm reading it right now. I was just reading it on the airplane. It's so good. And he says something great on this topic. He said that all comedians, and it's not just comedians. He just knows comedians. But from my research, it's business leaders, it's CEOs, it's authors, it's athletes. But he's talking about comedians specifically. He said everyone starts out with a certain insecurity, a chip on their shoulder, something to prove, whether yep. they're aware of it or not. You know, Bill Gates, too. Everyone had it. And that's not a bad thing. He said that's a natural part of the human experience. Yep. He said the difference, though, between those who have a lasting career over 50, 60 years and those who sort of like spike up and fall down and you never hear about them again is the ones that have a lasting career became self-aware during the process. It's huge. And acknowledged their original motivations and were able to swap it out with much more mission and purpose-driven motivations. Yep. And dude, across the board, whether it's Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, he said the same thing. Yep. I think people judge themselves for being insecure, for being, you know, feeling not enough and they hate those feelings. So they pretend they don't exist. That's a state of evolution. And, and what's really unique is that uh, you need that one level of or that early level of paranoia or insecurity to become Kobe Bryant, which I think, you know, if you look at his case as an athlete, he was one of the most cutthroat competitors on floor that, like Michael Jordan, had a mixed reputation from teammates and, and, and competitors. And then as he reached and kind of surpassed the peak of his career on floor, he used that and harnessed it in a way where he, where he changed his, um, you know, who he was as a person. And there were certainly yeah. setbacks in his career personally and challenges he ran into, but the Kobe Bryant that you saw in his final two years, bidding farewell to away team uh, fan bases and spending an extra one or two seconds in a hug with a competitor was not the Kobe O'Brien you saw- you know, Not at all. Yeah, 24 months earlier. Uh, so that metamorphosis is often met with resistance in the in, in the public stratosphere because a lot of people are resistant to change. But I, I think that happens, and it's 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 interesting to hear that as, as a progression with the right intention. Right. Yeah. So with all of that, understanding um, you know your own evolution and where you found yourself as a researcher and author, and kind of tying into your uh, early days as as a pre med. <laughs> and when you it's so think funny about to hear that, yeah, when you think about the school system, how do you uh, 
recommend a uh, career searching process go about for for young kids now? Mm-hmm. Is it still too early, or is it possible to you know find the find their quest, their next seven year quest, as you did? Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think whether you're in school or you're recently out of school, or let's say you're even out of corporation, you're ready to make a switch. I think a lot of people wait until they're you know, out in the cold to start searching. Yeah. And my biggest thing I could tell people is start taking your life into your own hands now. You know, we talked about it with therapy. Start going to a therapist before your life falls apart. Uh, I really am a huge, huge believer in that. There's a, you know, a great book called Never Eat Alone, which is about networking. And it talks about, you know, building the well before you need it. Yep. If you start networking for a job when you're unemployed, that's a really tough position to be in. But if you're in college right now and you start meeting people in tech, in the startup community in your town, everyone wants to talk to a college kid, you yeah. know? Everyone will let you shadow you. But I think a lot of people wait for short-term gains and they're not thinking the long-term. A lot of people search for excuses too. And so I'll ask this question. Uh, I'd imagine it's gone through a few people's uh, heads as they've listened, is what would you have done had you not won on The Price is Right? Because they could sit back wow. and say, well, Alex, you know, yeah, ambitious, but he got funded and it was a creative way to get funded. And maybe I've tried something creative and abstract and haven't. And I'm basically looking for an excuse not to stop, not to stop what I'm doing now. You know, for me specifically, I would have figured there's, there's a and look with the price right. I sold the sailboat for like seventeen thousand dollars, which at the time I felt like I was a millionaire. You know, right. taking all my friends to Chipotle, yeah. I'm like free guacamole for everybody. Right. You know, I felt like I was this rich guy. You know, <laughs> buying everyone you know extra guac on their burritos. And it's a great feeling, isn't it? Right. You, you know, can just order on top of the world. You're eighteen. Extra two fifty. You know, you, everybody knows that feeling when you're at Chipotle and they're like, you know, guac is extra and you have to think about it. Yeah. You know, once I want the price right, no more thinking. <laughs> extra guac for everybody. So, you know, if I didn't win it on the prices right, I probably could have found – and look, I'm also super aware. This is a thing that I don't talk about as often as I should. I was – you know, Cory Booker has this great quote that his dad told him, which is, don't walk around like you hit a home run when you were born on third base. Mm-hmm. You know, don't walk around like you hit a home run when you were born on third base. And I'm very well aware that I was born on third base. I grew up in Los Angeles. I, you know, went to good schools. I didn't have any, you know, physical issues. I was, you know, my mom bought me a laptop. You know, I had things. Where I know a lot of people, man, I I meet a ton of people who are, you know, teens and people in their 20s who are working two jobs because their parents sick. And I'm super aware that if I was in that position, you know, spending seven years on a wild goose chase with Bill Gates, you know, might not have been a realistic thing for me. So I, I don't take it for granted for a second. What I do know is that there's also people who I've met who were born in villages with, you know, that were so poor, there was no running water, no electricity. And they've gone on to achieve incredible things. So I don't think it's necessarily a lack of resources, but really a lack of resourcefulness. You know, that's Tony Robbins' famous quote. And I believe in that 100%. Amazing. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with us and sharing some of that. The third door, 
Uh, it's available on Amazon. Every, and, everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, Kindle, however you like to read books. Have, have, have you or did you uh, do the Audible yourself? It was the greatest experience I've ever had in my career. Great. And I, every author I talked to for advice said it's going to be miserable. Yeah, a lot don't. Oh, my God. They hate it. And I was like, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to make it the most fun experience. And I've never really shared this with anyone, but I went out because I sort of like doing these quests just for fun, even if it's a small quest. And I went out and found Michael Jackson and Justin Bieber's voice coach. And he ended up training me vocally for the audiobook. Great. And it was... So it's sort of like if you're going to go play pick a basketball and you go find like Jordan's coach just yeah. for like a quick one hour, you know, circuit. <laughs> I was like, I'm unstoppable. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, I would probably think about uh, audio engineers and, and uh, graceful technicians with voice and, and their proximity to Mike, like Howard Stern to mm-hmm. maybe learn how to be a better podcast host. Yeah. But that is uh that's a great, perk for me to hear if you're looking at uh, reading or listening to The Third Door is as I would consider going in the direction of Audible just oh to hear God. from you. I, I was crying dur- in the recording booth. It was that emotional. And one of the most fulfilling things now that the book is out is the Audible book is the highest one of the highest rated business books of the year on Audible right now. Awesome. If you enjoyed this episode of Suiting Up, please be sure to let us know. As always, you can catch us on Twitter. I'm at Paul Rabel, and Alex is at Alex Benayan. You can be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with another author, his book, The Four. He's also a nine-time entrepreneur and professor of marketing at NYU Stern. Mr. Scott Galloway goes by at Prof Galloway on Twitter. He was one of my all-time favorite guests on Suiting Up. His and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Also, when you find us, please hit subscribe and consider giving us a rating and review. That goes a long way, so thank you. Check out this show's episode show notes on suitinguppodcast.com and shout out to today's show sponsors, ZipRecruiter, Glip, and Away Travel. Thank you all very much as I bow on this side of the mic. To all of you listening, until next time, find your third door. Thank you.